Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. At the end of 2019, we bring you some thoughts on what mattered over the past year and what 2020 might hold for energy. Our guests today, Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners and Liam Denning with Bloomberg, are no strangers to thinking about future trends and cycles. Joined by my colleague, Sarah Ladislaw, they discuss the year's most impactful developments in the global and domestic energy landscape, some obvious and some less so. And they each highlight what to watch in 2020 for geopolitics, energy markets, and climate policy. I'll turn it over to Sarah now for this great conversation. Welcome to Energy 360. This is the first official edition of 2020, and I can't think of a better way to kick it off than with two of our regular guests, Kevin Book, who is the Managing Director of Clearview Energy Partners uh, Research and Analysis Firm, and Liam Denning, who is our favorite opinion writer for Bloomberg. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Well, so listen, it's 2020, and we want to think about what the year is going to bring for everybody. 2019 was quite an eventful year. It's hard to imagine that it's been uh, as jam-packed with events, uh, not just on sort of the energy climate space, but also geopolitics, global populism. It's really hard to look for any area in the world where we haven't seen a significant amount of churn. I'd like to start off this conversation maybe by just looking at the way in which 2019 and the events of that year maybe foreshadowed or set the table for things that we might expect to see in 2020. Dare I say 2020 is likely to be as eventful, if not more eventful. We do have a U.S. election. We've got lots of sort of continued geopolitical unrest on a whole number of uh, levels as well. So I anticipate it'll be a, a busy year. But Kevin, maybe you could start and tell us a little bit about how you characterize 2019 and maybe any significant things that jump out in terms of what affected the energy and climate space. Thanks, sir, for having me on what I think you properly call the first sounding off of 2020. Looking back at, at 2019, there are a lot of events one could point to that would punctuate a, a single theme that you and I and, and Liam and, and all of us have talked about now for some time, which is the transition from scarcity uh, and mentality of scarcity and the physical reality of scarcity to adequacy or even abundance. And whether you pointed to pushing major producers off the global market with sanctions or just really sort of the tepid price as the year closed out for crude, I would pick September 14th which was the, the day of the Iranian attacks on Abqaiq and Quraysh. And despite the, the biggest volumetric disruption in oil market history, the price defeated expectations for astronomical spikes to the upside and actually closed a couple of days later to the downside. And so if you weren't thinking about scarcity versus adequacy before, if you weren't thinking about how the energy demand picture and the realities of sort of energy under tension versus energy with some slack might have changed your expectations, that was your wake-up call for 2020. Time to think about what enough energy looks like for all of the policy questions and economic questions of the future. And interestingly, the event came Almost to the day, 10 years after the economic collapse precipitated by the end of Lehman Brothers on September 15, 2009. And if one thinks back on a market under stress, a world under economic stress, and the surprisingly calm result that happened after the Abkick attacks, it really illustrates very clearly what, what sort of different world we're in. Now, there are a lot of other important things that happened. Mm -hmm. But when I ask, like, how do I set the stage for 2020? What kind of baseline do we have? That is a staggering 
baseline, in my view. That's a really interesting example, because I would say, you know, it's sort of like the oil supply disruption that didn't happen, right? It did happen. And some of the credit goes to the Saudis for being able to, you know, rebuild their facilities quickly, probably at a premium cost, you know, and and with lots of reasons to want to get, you know, uh, make sure there was no significant supply disruption. But it's really been interesting, I agree with you, to see how people have responded to that incident, right? So we had Senator Cornyn from Texas call us up and say he wanted to do a speech on it because he thought it was the perfect example of how U.S. energy abundance has given us new strategic levers, right? It's really sort of delivered on our ability to to weather oil supply disruptions better, to use energy as a tool of foreign policy, like all these different things. That was sort of the significance to him, whereas other folks have, you know, tried to say, hey, listen, you know, the, the market stayed stable because there's so many more suppliers on the market because we are in this integrated market and all these other sorts of, you know, takeaway messages. But the real key thing is, for those of us who, like, in our soul thought that would be a market-shaking moment, you know, for that not to happen is a really significant shift. So I like that example. Hey, Liam, what about you? I'd follow on from Kevin and, and keep the, uh, the focus on Saudi Arabia. I mean, from my perspective, the big one was the, the biggest IPO ever that somehow also managed to be a, a, a fairly disappointing IPO. So I'm talking about the obviously the IPO of Saudi Aramco. And you may remember, I mean, that was first spoken about uh, almost exactly four years ago. It finally happened um, in December. What was interesting for me was, you know, it was obviously a huge IPO. It came onto the market at 1.7 trillion, you know, all sorts of superlatives around that. But uh, it, it ended up being a fairly stage managed affair you know, obviously they didn't have the global offering they were talking about. It, it was ended up being listed on a, you know, a domestic market that has average daily turnover, which is lower than that of even one major U.S. oil company, ExxonMobil, uh, had all sorts of inducements offered. And I think, you know, echoing Kevin somewhat, I think it, it, it speaks to just what's changed in the energy market over the past decade and this flip from, you know, fears of, 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 of scarcity in peak oil to um, to a, a recognition of abundance of, of energy, but also an abundance of um, carbon emissions that come with a lot of that energy. We saw this in other ways as well. I mean, you know, I'm thinking also of the, the recent startup of the new gas pipeline from Russia to, to China, which uh, it's called the, the Power of Siberia pipeline, but I think more accurately would be called the Power of China pipeline, um, which again, I think caps off a decade where another major producer and exporter of energy, Russia, uh, is having to come to terms with the fact that that the market has shifted somewhat from a a seller's market to a buyer's market. Hmm. I think it's really interesting as well on this, on the Aramco IPO, lots of people sort of characterizing that, as you said, Liam, as a significant shift, not just because it's an interesting thing to happen to, you know, the world's largest oil company, but also because it might signify uh, the way in which uh, even the world's largest oil producers are thinking about the energy transition and how to position themselves uh, in a market where they're not entirely sure of the future of the main product that they sell. And so there's a lot of, you know, sort of speculation about what comes next after the IPO uh, as well. But And that'll certainly be part of the narrative for, for 2020. Kevin, did you want to add anything on the IPO? I would say that as a as a matter of milestones, uh, the size may not be the issue so much as the the purpose. The purpose of that IPO explicitly 
was to fund a transition away from hydrocarbons, to diversify the Saudi economy. And so irrespective of what was projected in the prospectus, which, you know, produced a lot of, oh, look, there's a consulting firm that sees a peak in the 2030s. Well, okay, maybe. Uh, But really, it's the present value exercise itself. I mean, the country that won the geological lottery decided that they would take a lump sum payment instead of getting paid out over time. Uh, and what is that? Well, that's, that's idiosyncratically a Saudi issue. The crown prince has decided that he wants to monetize a social and economic change. Uh, but it's a milestone, and it's one that I think we'll probably look back on uh, and attribute significance based on the things yet to come. Yeah. So I'm going to move away from Saudi Arabia and oil markets for my most important event of 2019, which is really sort of a juxtaposition of, of you know, two different phenomenons. One, and, and it sort of took place at the UN Climate Summit in New York, which is the realization of a week where you've got the world's largest climate protests, right? Largest protests, quite frankly, ever recorded globally uh, in terms of the number of kids and other people who showed up in the streets to protest the climate crisis and in the Fridays for the Future strike phenomenon, which I think in and of itself has really changed the way that people are thinking about the relationship between popular pressure and public policy issues like uh, like climate change. But the real real issue for me was sort of the contrast of everybody sort of recognizing the political force of that issue on a popular level. And at the same time, within the context of both those summits and then also that summit and also the COP25 experience, extremely little being put on the table by way of concrete action. And so this this sort of, you know, juxtaposition of increasing popular pressure to do something, to rise to the challenge, and essentially, you know, other than some sort of new initiatives and new collaborative forums and other things that we've seen in the past, which are, of course, expressions of goodwill, the the real sort of lack of political willingness at an elite level to take on real and serious action in the face of that. And so for me, it set up a fundamental question for 2020, where there is fundamentally a lot more on the line in terms of delivering on climate ambition within the context of the formal processes Will that dynamic change? Are we going to just continue to see additional and and stronger protests with not a lot of concrete change in terms of the level of ambition we're seeing being delivered, particularly from governments? So for me, that was a really sort of poignant turning point and or development that characterized 2019. So turning to 2020, let's break this conversation down in a number of ways, because I think as we've already touched on, the world of energy is indeed a global affair. What are the top things that we should be looking at by way of U.S. energy policy in 2020? Liam, let's start with you this time. So just picking up on what you were saying about the protests in uh, in 2019. I guess at a broad level, it, it's hard to see or to focus in on a specific change that might happen at the national level. And I think that's partly because there are just bigger forces uh, acting out here. You know, for example, the, the the dynamics around the trade war, the dynamics around the election, the dynamics around the uh, the impeachment process. I think if I had to pick. One of those that's important for for energy, it's it's probably whatever's going to happen with the trade war, which to me remains the kind of the big macro risk that's kind of running as a theme through energy markets, um, but which you know tends to be obscured 
by whatever the issue of the, the day is. I think the fact that we already have a pretty weak oil market uh, whereby OPEC has had to effectively cut even more production just to kind of keep Brent pegged around the, the kind of 60 to 65 mark tells you how much risk there is built into whatever happens with uh, the trade war um, next year. And again, it's very hard to say exactly what's going to happen there because I think it will be determined to some degree or another by whatever happens with the impeachment process, whatever happens with uh, the dynamics around the election. Long way of saying, effectively, it is very hard to tell uh, what's going to happen with, uh, with energy pricing as we go through 2020, but I would say the risks are definitely skewed uh, down rather than up. I think the other thing that I'll be keeping an eye on, and, and this is much more of a localised thing, is, uh, is what happens with California. I mean, as we close out uh, 2019, the year of the, um, the PG&E bankruptcy, it is looking like we're, we're kind of getting towards some kind of resolution on the bankruptcy itself. PG&E does appear uh, to have cobbled together some kind of an agreement or settlement with most of the claimants. Now, there are still you know, details to be worked out, particularly around the, uh, the envisaged um, uh, bond financing of the settlement. But for me, the bigger issue is how is California going to look past this bankruptcy? I mean, so much energy is expended on on how PG&E is going to finance itself and, and who's going to end up owning it. But the big takeaway for me from this whole process is that California is facing a new normal in terms of its wildfire risk. There is clearly a huge capital expenditure need uh, to reconfigure or, or outright rebuild parts of California's grid. And in some ways, this is a case study for other states that will be facing heightened risks from climate change. And you know, as I think has been apparent throughout this whole process with PG&E, the big unanswered question is how is it going to be paid for and how are those costs going to be apportioned? And, and one of the dynamics there is, uh, you know, th- does the state embrace a typical kind of centralised approach to this, i.e. all the investment being made through a, uh, a publicly regulated utility uh, or does it go for more localised uh, solutions, you know, around microgrids and, and, and that sort of thing. And so for me, how California grapples with that and grapples with the costs of that uh, is going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Thanks, Liam. That's two good ones. So trade and the future of California's approach to, oh golly, like all the really ambitious things they're trying to do with their energy sector in the face of PG&E's bankruptcy. Kevin, what would you add to the list? Well, you know, I uh, I echo Liam's trade Point, but I would broaden it a little bit. We've thought about it uh, in terms of economic force projection. President Trump campaigned in 2016 really on that. He campaigned on, on tariffs, but also sanctions. And when you think about the tools he had in his toolkit and why he used them, what better time for tariffs, for trade war, than when you just had a tax cut juicing up your economy? What better time for, for sanctions on producer nations than when you've got producers going full speed in the Permian? Uh, and so you have to ask, well, what what happens in the, in the next term, if there is a next term? So when we look at 2020 in the context of the politics that Liam mentioned, you know, what comes after economic force projection? Is it a reversion to normalcy? I think to some degree we're never going entirely back, uh, but we'll find out because of politics. And if we don't go entirely back, what our domestic 
picture might look like is a step away from just economic force projection into active efforts towards deglobalization. And uh, that could be really the essence of the, the 2020 campaign, the, the bifurcation of the world into a new Warsaw Pact and a new NATO, uh, you know, essentially the, the China trade war taken to the next level. Uh, and so when you think what the demand implications of that could be, well, we'll have to have another podcast for that. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the second issue, um, usually I, I tend to think that legislation, when you have a mixed Congress, isn't worth looking at until you've got a real chance of passing something. But in the case of climate legislation, you know, we've talked about the political scenarios of the status quo and you have a, a deregulatory effort that, that spurs subnational and international action if President Trump gets a second term, or possibly a, a wave election that brings a, a, a mandate for a real climate move by the Democrats in power, potentially in three centers of power. And we get an early look, I think, of what the, the superset of ideas will be if we get a climate bill from the House Democrats. And whereas that bill is as unpassable in this environment as anything else that comes out on a party line basis, I think it'll be a useful encyclopedia, sort of a, an early roadmap that we can start thinking about what that catapult scenario might look like if it shoots back the other direction and goes well past where things were in the Obama administration. Yeah, you can tell, Kevin, that you and I both live in Washington, D.C., because we went immediately to the election side of the equation. <laughs> but I agree with you. The way that I was characterizing it is, you know, we've lived so far in 2019 in the context of thinking about the election, but being in a primary phase of the election cycle where, you know, everything is possible. You've got the fullest spectrum of, you know, everybody on the Democratic side. You even have some Republicans running. Everything seems, you know, potentially possible. You've got this very wide array of sort of plans. We have more plans and we know what to do with. Next year, that's all going to narrow down, right? It's going to narrow down because you're going to have a candidate on the Democratic side of the equation. You're going to have some signaling, as you said, from Congress about what the art of the possible is, even from the very ambitious sort of, you know, democratically led House side of the equation. It's really going to start sending some signals about what they're teeing up for, you know, a potential Democratic administration. And quite frankly, you know, seeing the, uh, the sort of damage or lack thereof from the impeachment hearings, Coming to the other side of that equation, you'll start to see what, you know, what the Republican landscape looks like for a second Trump administration. And so where we've kind of been in this very interesting never, never land of expansive energy ideas and, and climate plans, it'll all start to narrow down a bunch next year. One of the key questions for me in the context of the debate is how much in all of these particularly Democratic candidate landscapes, how much does climate ultimately going to matter relative to some of their other priorities? You know, I'd like to think it's going to be a really big and important agenda item because that's the issue that I work on. But I've been around town for a long time and, you know, that, you know, it's not everybody's number one issue. I think it's really so far in the election there's been a lot of pressure, particularly from the progressive side of the equation, to make it a big issue. But next year, I think we're going to see how much staying power that has. I think the entire tenor of the debate is going to change, quite frankly, when you've got a Democratic nominee going up against the president. And so I think we'll really start to see what the contours of that uh, of that cycle will look like. 
to, to combine, you know, what you said, Kevin, and what Liam said, I think the conversation could be fundamentally different if next year we really lose faith in the ability of the economy to sort of turn around and avoid slipping into some sort of recessionary cycle. And I think that would really sort of color the debate that we're going to experience in the presidential election cycle if people become, become fundamentally concerned about growth uh, over the course of the next year. And so that's, uh, that's something that I think will shape all of what we talk about in energy policy next year. Turning to Kevin, let's look globally. So if you think about next year on the global stage, I think we've already got uh, a little bit of how you think the trade landscape is going to look on that front, but color that in a little bit. What are some of the major issues on the global energy and climate landscape you're taking a look at? Well, Sarah, I'll start with the European Union. Ursula von der Leyen has become the European Commission's new president, and one of her first agenda items is to look at border adjusting goods into and out of Europe on a climate basis, so sort of going from, from trade war to carbon trade war, which you know was unspeakable a decade ago in the world of organized top-down Kyoto schemes, but seems perfectly rational in today's sort of chaotic bottom-up Paris Agreement context. And so I think we will want to watch uh, in 2020 how the von der Leyen administration proceeds, how much pushback they get, and how serious they are. Uh, among other things, it could precipitate a response that could lead to a price on carbon here in the U.S. if we want to indemnify U.S. producers selling into European markets. The second thing I would look at is Iran. It depends on whose numbers you use uh, and, and how you calculate the strategic goals of Iran and what, the, what they want to do. But they're headed back towards breakout in amassing nuclear material towards a bomb. A single warhead does not second strike capability make, uh, nor would enough fissile material for that warhead actually constitute a warhead. But it does mean that it's, it's that moment where risk in the Middle East is starting to change. You worry again when you get closer to that point whether Israel, going through its own tumultuous domestic political process, is going to look at Iran as a risk at which uh, you know, whoever's in charge might seek to strike out. Uh, you have to think about whether the, the E3, the European leaders who are still in the, the compact, uh, might follow through with their threat to begin a dispute resolution process that ends the deal. And you have to ask whether or not this is where negotiations start. It's not a small thing for energy markets because it could put hundreds of thousands of barrels of crude back on the market. Or alternatively, a conflict could truly impair the flow of crude at a time when we've been talking about all this slack in the system. So the third thing, and it's not a small thing either, goes back to something we talked about at the beginning of 2019, which was the sort of the, the convergence of command economies and capitalist economies and the, the, the command features of sort of authoritarian societies showing up in capitalist democracies. And a lot of countries that had sort of veered right, maybe veering back to the left or at least considering more, you know, more non-market types of worlds. And we need look no further than just across our own southern border to Mexico, where uh, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador will be, you know, going into his second year, substantially having reversed the energy reforms without ever actually reversing the constitutional amendment that brought them. Uh, in Latin America writ large, uh, a lot of the, the right-leaning leaders are either toppling or weakening. I think we should ask questions about where that world is going. So uh, to the extent that there's a geopolitical cast uh, in terms of the, the market focus of energy investment and the durability of investment. One of the features of capitalism and one of the features of, of stable democracies is investment durability. One of the risks that inheres 
when you have uh, sort of authoritarian systems and, and socialist governments is nationalization and expropriation. What does this mean for the investment wave that we've been expecting to see from some of the non-U.S. producing opportunities? Uh, you know, how does this change the map of the world if the trend is sweeping back towards authoritarianism? Three really good ones uh, there, Kevin. Uh, Liam, what's on your list? Well, all of those for a start. But um, <laughs> the other country that I'd, I'd like to keep an eye on really is, is what's happening with uh, Iraq, where, you know, when you look at the cast of, of countries in OPEC, it, it, we tend to focus obviously on Saudi Arabia. We tend to focus on Iran. Um, Venezuela and Libya, which took up a lot of attention, are now just sort of in that column of well, we sort of expect them to remain, you know, volatile, but broadly on a decline in terms of production and no real solution there. Uh, Iraq has, has come back to the fore um, with its recent unrest. And it's, it, it's important because Iraq has been, uh, along with Russia, one of the big kind of quota breakers for OPEC this year. And, you know, it's very interesting at the, at the latest OPEC meeting how the, the Iraqi uh, energy minister was... Uh, was uh, cajoled, uh, for want of a better term, onto the stage uh, for the press conference at the end to, uh, to kind of pledge uh, loyalty to the cuts. Um, Iraq is clearly a you know, battleground um, between uh, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and, and God knows who else who has an interest there. Uh, if we are to see uh, you know, f- further unrest there, uh, that could be another huge uh, swing factor in terms of uh, OPEC oil supply in 2020. And, and one of the things that's become clear, uh, you know, since OPEC began this, this process of, uh, of, of holding barrels off the market, which you may remember, you know, began as a six-month process and is, is now entering its fourth year. You know, one of the big things uh, is, is that uh, it's actually just been the outright collapse of several members um, that has played such a, a huge role um, in OPEC's quote-unquote uh, success in reviving oil prices after 2016. So I think uh, it will certainly um, you know, pay dividends to keep an eye on what's happening with uh, Iraq in 2020. And if it joins that, that growing list of, of OPEC members who are you know, simply unable to, uh, to, to, to not only really control their overall level of, of oil production, but even even get to uh, whatever quota has been set for them. That's another good one. That's great, Liam. I, uh, once again, sort of departed from the oil market world to pick China, uh, obviously, as, as sort of the big uh, country to watch for a number of reasons, particularly uh, next year is just going to be a big year for pressuring China in the climate community to try and take a much bigger role in terms of holding up ambition in the context of the, you know, 2020 uh, new pledges uh, at, at the UN Conference of Parties at the end of the year. Um, it'll also be interesting to see because we have sort of a new strategic awareness uh, with regard to China here in the United States, which is one of intensifying competition and or decoupling in some way, shape or form. And I think, you know, it's one thing to watch that play out in the context of a trade war. It's another thing to see that sort of emerge into an area where the trade war doesn't come to some sort of resolution. We continue on these divergent paths. They get more intensified. And we have sort of a new emergent world of two really competing systems. 
And I think that that sort of forces China into an area of of defining for itself what its system looks like. And I think that it's really hard, um, particularly in the climate lens, to look at China and, and conclude anything other than whatever they decide to do is enormously important and consequential for the rest of the world. And so whether it's in the context of how they invest money in the Belt and Road Initiative, whether it's how they think about their own domestic clean energy policies, whether it's for the purposes of strategic competition in new energy technologies like batteries and EVs, or in the context of reducing air pollution, or reverting back to an older model of just trying to make sure that you keep growth going and so investing in strategic areas, which tend to be high carbon at that. I think next year and how China you know, continues to evolve in this new pattern is going to be a really big factor for determining the future of, uh, of energy markets. I want to turn now to the private sector. I think we've had a little bit of that so far, but we tend to think because, especially in Washington, you think about policy as being one of the big influencers of what happens in the energy and climate space. But we know very well that you know investors in the private sector are shaping a lot of the environment that we see today, whether it's transforming the energy sector or just you know thinking about where they're investing or interesting things that they're doing. I thought maybe turn to Liam first. You know, what are some of the things that you think we should be looking out in the market or at particular private sector players for things that we should be interested in in 2020? I think, you know, 2020 is going to be probably for the at least the third time in a row, the year where the oil sector asks, you know, does, does the US shale boom finally taper off? Does the industry begin to consolidate finally? Do we start to see some deals? I'm cautiously in the camp that 2020 could be the year that we finally see some of this happen. It's certainly something that needs to happen. You know, I'm, I'm at that point right now where I'm, like a lot of columnists, having to uh, cobble together my, my end of decade piece and, and trying to kind of narrow down uh, some themes for that. And one of them has obviously been cheap financing. I, I don't think it's an accident that we saw both the the oil shale boom and the emergence of Tesla happen at the same time over the past decade. And like Tesla and, and, and some other tech or, or whatever startups, you know, the US exploration and production sector has obviously benefited enormously from cheap capital over the past decade. Now, a lot of that capital um, went into what has effectively amounted to a massive market share grab by uh, the U.S. oil sector, typical of what you you might see with uh, with startups in areas like ride sharing or or electric cars, for example. A lot of that capital has you know effectively been written off, um, and we've seen the sector really spend the first half of the decade plowing enormous sums into into raising production, most of which began to come through just as oil prices fell off a cliff at the end of 2014. Now, it's taken energy investors a little while to kind of catch up to that. But as we enter 2020, it's quite clear that the energy sector has become a bit of a pariah, despite the fact that it's, it's been enormously successful for things like energy dominance over the past 10 years. Um, energy has been, you know, by far the worst performing of the major sectors over the past decade. It's now down to a historic low in terms of its share of the, uh, the S&P 500. And we've also seen high yield bond issuance and, and equity issuance by EMP companies collapse. 
So, uh, you know, as we enter 2020, the big question is, will there be another set of financing available to enable EMP companies to, to keep going with their drilling plans? I suspect the industry will bifurcate at this point, and it's something we're starting to see already in terms of stock price performance between those companies that have gotten serious about getting their leverage down, about spending within their means, and those that are still trying to push the old model of effectively you know, trying to grow production as quickly as possible and sort of rely on their, uh, their asset-backed lending lines or other forms of third-party capital to keep it going. If we see the latter really start to struggle, then we will see more consolidation in shale. Uh, we will see some of the more ambitious uh, production growth targets for the US start to uh, either level off or, or actually come down. I don't think they will come down dramatically if only because such a large amount of the, uh, the activity these days is taken up by companies uh, owned by private equity who aren't necessarily watching their share price day to day um, and, and have a vested interest in just keeping production growing and, and getting cash in the door. However, I, I think we will start to see some of the more ambitious production growth targets come off as, as reality really just starts to catch up with the financials of this industry. That's great. Thanks, Liam. I, I had not thought of Tide Oil as being one of America's most successful startup ventures, but, uh, but in that context, your point definitely taken. Kevin, what about you? Following on what Liam said, the role energy plays in the overall economic picture, and for that matter, the innovation cycle is important. Periods of cheap energy, where we are right now, tend to be good for everything else. And periods of cheap everything else, where we had been with computerization, digitalization, the automation wave, uh, cheap materials, the availability of, of raw materials, uh, globally sourced integrated systems, tend to be good for energy. So we're in a period right now where cheap energy is good for everything else. Uh, it generally means that it engenders demand, right? So when you ask, what are the corporate entities doing? Uh, usually, this is where the corporate entities are saying, wow, energy is cheap. Let's expand. Let's find ways to maximize margins. But this is going to be a real test cycle or maybe year cycle. I'm not sure whether it'll be a year-long cycle. It'll probably be longer than that. Uh, but assuming that prices don't rebound this year, uh, 2020 in full, the question will be how serious they are with their green commitments. Governments are yanking their green spend. Uh, you can see the results of that. Uh, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance numbers have shown declining installations of renewable capacity. Uh, there's questions about the proliferation of, of new energy vehicles in China, and for that matter, EVs, uh, electric vehicles and alternative uh, vehicles for the, the non-one percenters here in the U.S. And when you ask, so where, where's the corporate walk to go with the talk? The question is always going to be the same as it should be. What is good for the corporation? What delivers returns to the shareholder? Now, there are some new views of what corporations should or should not do, a broader definition of stakeholder that uh, considers perhaps making non-economic choices in ways that deliver greater social result. Uh, we'll be able to see right now in this time of, of feasting, right? This is the feast cycle for the everything else because energy is cheap. What will they do? And I think the answer right now, preliminarily, is that they're probably going to do what is best for the corporation. Uh, and that still generally means returns to shareholders. Uh, but it also, in this case, means that respect for what customers want. When customers say something, 
they generally are telling you something worth listening to. And if you run any business of any kind and you ignore your customer, my sense is you won't be in business for long. So I want to go back to something you said, Sarah, about protests. Mm -hmm. Protests are a way that the corporate constituencies that use and produce energy are getting information. I wonder how much information they're getting. There's a culture of protests now, and they're very successful, and they're, they're mediated by social media. And so it's possible to deliver a very big voice without necessarily having a very big impact because there are, well, so many successful protests. Uh, what does change things is boycotts, right? Consumer behavior change. And so I wonder to the extent that corporations fall behind their stakeholders' expectations, whether stakeholders themselves are going to put their, well, money where their mouths have been. Uh, and uh, if they do, uh, we could be getting into a very interesting decade indeed. <laughs> well, I had a similar, uh, similarly themed uh, pick myself, which was not necessarily about whether protesters decide that they're going to be able to you know, organize into boycotts, but, but certainly the next phase of what we've seen, which I think has been very effective in at least changing the talk uh, and, and some of the walk, I guess, of different corporations and certainly investors, which has been the sort of investor pressure wave that really punctuated over the last several years in the task force on climate-related financial risk disclosure, I think next year it's going to experience another wave, which is essentially due to the stress testing going on by several European uh, central banks looking at climate impact risk on various businesses and not just asking banks and companies to think about what their risk exposure is to a deeply decarbonizing world, but to add newly emergent and more granular science and sort of cost estimates related to that science on what the impacts will be just of the impacts of climate change on different companies, on different investors, on different asset classes, and really sort of taking that pressure to think about risk as it is associated with climate change, as it is translated through investors into boardrooms to a, yet another level. And so I expect a ratcheting up of pressure to emerge from that conversation sometime next year, certainly as one of the component pieces of trying to drive home this idea that, you know, even if you're not rapidly, you know, going to a two degree scenario, you as somebody who owns a set of assets that have some value have to think about the risk uh, of those assets in a world where you can't deal with the climate impacts that, that we're seeing. And so I, I think that's going to be sort of another new chapter, a more punctuated chapter in this ongoing conversation we've seen between investors and corporations. I don't know that it'll yield a lot more activity or action. It'll probably yield a lot more reports and certainly conversations between companies and their uh, and their investors, but certainly think that that'll be something we see more of next year. Anything else? Any other wild cards we've left off the table, guys? Not so much a wild card. I just kind of wanted to follow up on, on what you were saying there and, and really just make an observation about the role of the corporation and, and something I've seen, particularly with the oil majors, which is thinking back to the first decade of the 21st century, when the focus was very much on, you know, finding every last bit of supply that it could to, to feed this, this growing appetite for oil and gas. The downstream part of those businesses was very much the poor relation, you know, the majors were selling off refineries, selling off uh, service stations. What's been really interesting for me this decade, and particularly the latter half of this decade, is, is sort of big oil's rediscovery of, of 
of how much it loves the little guy, you know. And you can see it not just in, in CapEx plans, but in the language used in the analyst days. There's much more emphasis these days on the value of refining, on the value of having a relationship with the customer. And I think that speaks to, you know, this shift towards energy abundance and the need to realize more value from, from the commodity as, as, as the value of it in the upstream uh, has come down. Um, you know, we've seen it with, with oil, we've seen it particularly with, with how the majors are approaching shale investments and, and their desire to, to link that with, um, with, with new processing on the Gulf Coast. Uh, we've seen it with a bigger role for natural gas, where obviously, um, you know, the, the way that market is structured is much more focused on direct relationships with customers. And obviously, we've seen it in some of the forays into electricity and into renewables and, uh, and even things like electric vehicle charging. Uh, and I think that will continue. I don't think that that's, uh, as much as there are elements of, uh, of greenwashing to, to some of this, I think that need to reconfigure themselves as customer-focused businesses will continue. Um, how successful they'll be in making that shift obviously remains to be seen. That's great, Liam. Thanks. So clearly, we've not reached peak energy transition yet. Maybe the term will be around <laughs> for 2020 as well. I think that was one of the more popular terms of, uh, of 2019. Um, looks like we're going to have a really busy uh, and exciting year. I want to thank both of you for sharing your thoughts with us as always and wish uh, you and all of our listeners a happy new year and all the best for 2020. A happy new year to you too. Happy new year. Thanks to Liam and Kevin for joining Energy 360 again. And thank you for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, if you've got ideas for future episodes, send us your thoughts or suggestions at Twitter at CSIS Energy or find us at CSIS.org. 